In today's episode of Script and Style, we'll talk with Chris Ferdinandi about vanilla JavaScript. Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Welcome to the Scripted Style Show. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, too. Are we doing Facebook logo talking at each other? We are. So Facebook changed its corporate like logo, or actually corporate name, stylistically, to all caps, Facebook. And for some reason, I'm just annoyed by it. I don't like no one wants to be shouted at. I don't want to read capital letters. I have a hard time understanding it. And of course, I tweeted something and you responded with all caps as well. Branding is important, David. It like, what do you think? Do you have any opinion on this? Um, I think they're, I mean, they're trying to be transparent because they got a lot of criticism on people who don't know that like, uh, Instagram and WhatsApp and all of their other properties are like funneling data into the same thing. And so they're trying to like tokenly, uh, put a, like a little Facebook on the Instagram, you know, app or whatever, but I don't know. I think they should get broken up probably. I don't like it. Like the, what? The one reason I can see why something like this would be good is because people uh, from a branding perspective maybe don't know whether to capitalize the B in Facebook because it, it sort sounds like in like two different words, Facebook. Mm. And I'm reading the Washington Post article. It says it's to convey optimism. All caps. Don't Shouting, I, I have never read a post written in all caps by anybody and felt like, oh yeah, yeah, that person's just being super optimistic. No, but we no. should we should move on. We have a great guest today. We should move on. Uh, today we have uh, a special guest, Chris Ferdinandi, is going to join us to talk about vanilla JavaScript. He's a front-end developer and advocate for vanilla JavaScript all over the web. He also runs Go Make Things, a JavaScript learning platform. Welcome on the show, Chris. Thanks a lot, Todd and David. It's uh, really great to be here. Awesome. So we uh, typically start our program by learning about your origin story. So if you could mm -hmm. tell us something about how did you get started in software? Uh, what made you interested? What was the path that you took to get here? Yeah, um, I am like a career Winnie the Pooh, just kind of bumbling <laughs> around from honeypot to honeypot. So I um, I started my professional career in human resources, which um, I don't recommend. It's uh, <laughs> it paid Are the we talking with a, rec a secret recruiter? You no, know, no, 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 no. So I am. Um, <clears throat> I uh, when I was in HR, I had a lot of strong opinions about how it sucked and how it could be better. And I started blogging about it. And I wanted to have a lot more control over the look and feel of my my WordPress blog. So I started messing around with CSS and HTML and PHP, um, largely actually thanks to actually David blogs like yours and CSS tricks. And um, along the way, I kind of became known in, in my company as the HR guy who knows techie stuff. Um, and at the time, I was in the learning development group there um, 
And we were experimenting with some kind of more mobile appy learning stuff versus the old boring, get some butts and seats and talk to people kind of training. And uh, we had looked at having like some prototypes built out and they were all gonna be really, really expensive or take a really long time to build out. We were just looking for some like rough and tough kind of try it and if it fails, move on kind of stuff. And so my boss is like, can you, you know, could you build it? And I'm like, no, definitely not. I don't know how to build apps. And he's like, well, can you learn? And I'm like, ah, I don't know, maybe. So um, I spent like three weeks in the bowels of Stack Overflow, getting really frustrated, um, trying a whole bunch of stuff, failing over and over again. And after People answering weeks, your questions of why shouldn't you just throw away your whole idea and do this other thing instead. <laughs> right. Or like a lot of snark or a lot of like, you idiot, that question already exists. You can find it here. That's but basically then, what Stack Overflow is now. Like right? I was looking at Stack Overflow uh, the other day and like any question asked since like 2018 is just trash. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. all right. Sorry. So, no, no, all good. So I am, um, I somehow got something that kind of sort of worked put together. It is the worst code I've ever written in my entire life. Um, but it worked. And for me, the the thrill of like making something that actually worked in a browser was really, really exciting. It was way cooler than anything I had been doing in like real HR before that. Um, and so I knew in that moment that I didn't want to be in human resources anymore. And I just full on wanted to be a web developer. Um, in the learning development group, my specific kind of focus was on teaching software engineers career stuff, how to find new jobs, how to figure out what they wanted to do next, et cetera. So um, I spent two years putting the stuff I had been teaching other engineers into practice to make a career jump. Um, it took literally two years to do it. Um, for me, I ended up meeting someone at a conference who hired me for my first developer job. Um, and, uh, and yeah, things just kind of took off from there. Um, a lot of my focus in JavaScript specifically came from the fact that no one wanted to hire someone at that time who just knew HTML and CSS. Um, I was not designy enough for the design roles and not developery enough for the developer roles. Um, so I started messing around with jQuery, constantly bombing tech interviews because I could make the code work but had no idea why it was doing what it was doing. Um, and because and you weren't using Moo tools. Like yes, you, you, you would have gotten hired right away with <laughs> So um, so I just kind of started reverse engineering some of my jQuery scripts into vanilla JS to figure out a little bit more about what was happening behind the scenes. And uh, yeah, over time, I, I somehow became known as the vanilla JS guy because I kept writing articles about if you do this in jQuery, do that in vanilla JS. And um, eventually it just kind of stuck. So um, happenstance is my origin story. <laughs> happenstance and reverse engineering jQuery script. Yeah, yeah. That's so. a really brilliant way of of learning it actually. Like that's that's yeah. a that's like a throwback to, you know, a lot of people uh like will learn JavaScript by like reverse engineering a site and like, mm -hmm. you know, looking at source, although you can't really do that anymore with how everything's obfuscated. But like back in the day you could just like read the source code of a site mm -hmm. and kind of figure out how it worked. And uh, and that there's a lot of parallels with that of oh like here's a script that works in jQuery now what does jQuery do with it and <laughs> yep yeah so that's um that was kind of it for me I um a bunch of other things is kind of like a you know like I really wanted to specialize in stuff I tried to do web performance for a while which I'm good at doing web performance but um. 
getting people to care about it is really hard. So another nice thing for me about vanilla JavaScript is it's kind of like a kind of sneaky ninja way to get into the performance stuff, um, which we can talk about as we kind of dig into why I love it so much. Yeah, I, yeah, we I really totally like to talk about that. Yeah. I really but, like your story about about bombing interviews because you knew the jQuery, but you didn't know what was happening behind it. Because when I was doing <clears throat> tech interviews, mm -hmm. and I still do them now, but jQuery I, like isn't as popular, isn't as big, isn't what people are looking for so much anymore. Um, mm -hmm. yep. But I could ask somebody a question as simple as, "How do you get the child nodes of a of you know an element?" And they would give me the jQuery response. And yeah. from a hiring perspective, that's a little bit scary, right? Because no one's really just hiring for jQuery. Um, but at the same time, as an interviewer, it's not as though I could tell them, like, during the interview, like, you should figure out what's going on behind the scenes, right? So I think that your story is one that, that um, happens actually quite a bit. Now, I will say to Todd's banter with regard to MooTools, <laughs> remember that MooTools extended prototypes. So you were actually using mm -hmm. or, or they were available. Yeah, so for better like, or worse. You know, <laughs> who, could forget the, who could forget Smush, but. <laughs> oh, God. OK, moving Smush on. Gate. So. I guess my first question would be before we jump into like why you evangel evangelize, you know, using vanilla JavaScript, mm -hmm. how did we get to a place where we became so reliant and uh, on these like a MooTools or a jQuery? How do we get to the point where it wasn't yeah. deciding whether or not we were going to use one of them on a project, but which mm -hmm. one we were going to use? Todd, did David just he he, he, he he did. David okay. did just flip out back. for me. All right, back. cool. Welcome back, David. You, Thank you. you entered the matrix. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's your connection, dude. Chris and I saw each other the whole time. <laughs> so back to my question though, like how did it become yeah. just de facto we needed to use something? Yeah. So um I, I think with jQuery and MooTools and tools of that era, it's it's a lot more obvious and I think there's a really clear like, yes, you should definitely use these things, at least at the time that they were born. So, you know, pre, I wanna say around like the advent of ES5 is when things started to get a little bit better. But for those of you who are old enough to remember the browser wars, you have the scars to have survived them. Um, and like life went IE6 and IE7 and I even IE8 were still like normal browsers. Cross-browser compatibility was really hard. A lot of things that are super easy today, like selecting an element by class or um, uh, you know, some complex set of selectors was really, really, really hard. And the two biggest things these tools offered were simple helper functions to do common tasks that used to be huge pains to do vanilla um, and cross-browser compatibility. So like I can remember looking at code bases that had if this method is supported, do this, else do this other thing instead as like weird ways to make sure this thing worked in IE and Chrome and Firefox, which all kind of had slight differences between each other, like standards just weren't there. Um, so I think that's where kind of some of those earlier tools, helper libraries, like precursors to what people might use like Lodash or underscores for today came from. Um, 
I think the development landscape today with its dependency on frameworks like React and Vue, um, to me is a very different kind of origin story than the older libraries of yesteryear. Um, and I see those kind of born out of, um, born out of a couple of different things. Um, for me personally, it feels like um, uh, just as an industry, this kind of this obsession with tools leads us to constantly chase the next new bright, shiny thing. There's a little bit of a, if it's good enough for insert name of favorite, favorite large you know, engineering organization, it's good enough for me. Like, oh, if it's good enough for Facebook, like those, those organizations deal with issues that you don't. They have problems that you don't. I think you could make a pretty strong case that Twitter or Facebook, and I, warning, I'm about to like dump on some, not people, but organizations here, but I think you can make a pretty strong argument that those are not necessarily the kind of pinnacles of great web development best practices, even though we often treat them like they are in the industry. Um, you know, so that's a big part of it. And then I think one of the other things I see happen a lot is as the front end has matured as a platform, um, companies have either said, hey, backend guy, you know code, do the front end stuff, or backend developers have moved into the front end because it's been a more interesting and exciting space. And they bring with them a lot of best practices from the back end that don't necessarily translate well into the front end. And a lot of what we do today is us forcing kind of back endy practices on the front end. I know some people really like think that's a good approach. I personally happen to disagree. I think it causes a lot of problems that we have to battle with. Like in fixing some issues, we create a whole slew of new ones. What are some back-endy processes that, that you think are getting pushed into the front end? Yeah, great question. One I should have been better prepared to answer with a, with a setup like that. <laughs> um, but um, for me, the big thing is control. So when I look at what frameworks do today, not, not libraries like jQuery and MooTools, which are more about kind of standardizing, a lot of the frameworks I see today are about kind of wrangling control into the front end. Um, a lot of the full stack quote unquote developers I know who love things like Angular love it because they started in .NET and it feels very familiar with MVC kind of approaches and data binding and kind of this idea that I control what runs and when and how and like, for me, like the, the thing that makes front-end development so exciting is how little control you have. Our stuff is being accessed on devices of varying capability in browsers that have varying levels of support on connections that vary in their speed and resilience. And so you have absolutely no idea if the stuff you're sending down the wire is actually gonna show up there. And if you're used to the backend, you have things that run predictably at certain times in certain ways with a stack that you have control over. And so not always, it's not always a one-to-one -one mapping, but a lot of what I see these tools and processes we try and do on the front end um, do is, is really try and bring some of that predictability to the front end. Um, and I, I think in doing so, they ignore just how expensive that is for browsers. So a big part of the reason why I feel so strongly about using native browser methods and uh, APIs, you know, vanilla JS whenever possible, um, is because of how just incredibly taxing all this code we're shipping down the wire is now. So you're saying that the 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 control frameworks, the Angulars, the Reacts, the Embers, the 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 these control-based systems are uh, the the overhead and the kind of the the performance costs aren't necessarily worth the uh, su 
supposed uh, productivity gains that you would argue would, would come from? Yeah, 100%. So, um, so one, I debate the fact that these are, I, I don't inherently believe that these tools um, just automatically give you performance gains as a developer team. I think they give you some benefits in some areas and then they hurt other segments of your developer team. Um, specifically, people who are really good at JavaScript seem to enjoy these tools and people who aren't um, find them frustrating and it can sometimes hinder their ability to work effectively on a team, which is a thread we can dig into if you want. Um, but the other thing is they they just, they it's a lot of, 30 kilobytes doesn't sound like a lot, but on a slower mobile connection or an older device, it is a lot of code to ship down the wire. It's not as simple as 30 kilobytes of like a JPEG or even CSS that, you know, can be, quickly parsed and then rendered and, and carried on. There's just a lot of stuff that happens under the hood to run and execute JavaScript. It impacts time to first um, byte, time to interactive in much more significant ways than other parts of the stack. And uh, we're just shipping so much JS now that it's, it's in my opinion, it's, it's hurting the web in like really tangible, meaningful ways. Now, is it is it the, the fact that we're shipping a lot of JavaScript and that we are building sites that are dependent on that JavaScript running? Or is it specifically that like the ecosystem around React and Angular and those sort of things are encouraging it? Yes. <laughs> I, think it's, it's, I think it's both of those things. So um, just JavaScript in and of itself, whether it's vanilla or React or whatever, like the, the, the simple trajectory is more JavaScript is worse for performance than less JavaScript. I've heard people say, well, that's true of any code, like more CSS, but, and that's true. Like, you know, shipping 200, 300 kilobytes of CSS is worse performance than shipping 50. But 100 kilobytes of CSS is substantially better for performance than 100 kilobytes of JavaScript would be. So just JavaScript in and of itself is like the, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy here. It's like the carbon monoxide of the web. It's the like, it um, you know, like it, it is potentially useful. This is a bad analogy, but like it has some uses. It's important. It's an important part of the stack. But we should try and limit how much of it we have. I guess cake is a better a better example. Little cake, good. A lot of cake, bad. Same thing with JavaScript. Um, the other piece is when you start getting into frameworks and libraries and other abstracted tools. The more layers of abstraction you throw in, the more work the browser has to do to parse and run that code. And on really expensive computers, on fast internet connections, the difference between that and vanilla is pretty much insignificant. But when you think about a majority of the web, and in particular the, the new wave of devices that are entering the web, they're increasingly not that. And for them, JavaScript, of all forms, but in particular frameworks, is substantially more impactful um, and can cause them to experience significant performance issues or just not load your page at all. I've definitely seen a lot of uh, overly complex JavaScript pages fail due to JavaScript bugs. Yeah, um, yeah and it's also super fragile, right? Like, yeah. no resilience. It sounds like there's a lot of symmetries in what you're saying with the uh, the old tried and true best practice of progressive enhancement mm -hmm. that like used to be like the thing you do on the web and now like 
nobody even knows that it existed. Yeah, it's really fallen out of favor, um, which is which is too bad. I think there's um there's maybe this belief that like I used to have this argument with people like oh progressive enhancement means that if I build something in client side code, I also have to completely reproduce it in some server side technology. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's that's always the case. I mean, if you have an entirely client side driven app, then yeah, sure, that's that's the case. Like if everything is rendered with JavaScript, then yes. But um, I've always thought of progressive enhancement as um, augmenting the current thing versus um, kind of replicating it one to one. So like the example I like to fall back to is if you wanted to maybe use the JavaScript con or the GitHub content API to show your last five repositories on your website and you were going to use JavaScript to do that, instead of um, just having an empty div that gets populated with content when the JavaScript runs, you could default to a link to your GitHub profile. And then when the JavaScript runs, that gets replaced with the fancy API stuff. Um, GitHub itself actually uses progressive enhancement all over their site. It's a very JavaScripty app that uses a lot of Ajax to submit forms and load stuff. But if you disable JavaScript, it falls back to old school like form submissions and the server kind of takes over. But they're not writing the code twice. They're just hooking into those backend processes with JavaScript to make the front end snappier. There's a fantastic uh, a conference talk from somebody at Facebook or somebody at GitHub uh, from a few years ago. And it was something clever like writing JavaScript like it's 1998 at GitHub. Yeah. Uh, and it was all about that progressive enhancement. And like when you click on something, mm -hmm. it's not a client-side rendering transition. They're just using the PJAX pattern to fetch a document from the server and then replace the DOM. And it all feels very fast and fluid, but it's using these old tried and true technologies that are, are much more reliable than rendering it mm -hmm. with a client-side library. Yeah, you mentioned the whole, you know, pages breaking because of JavaScript thing. But like, so, you know, in HTML, if you misspell an element, uh, the browser just treats it like a div and carries on. If you mistype a property in CSS, the browser ignores it and carries on. But if you mistype a variable in JavaScript, when it goes to parse, it throws you an error and everything after it stops. And I don't, I don't know if people have really kind of made the connection to how, especially newer folks who are just learning, like I don't know if they fully realize just how fragile JavaScript is relative to other, other languages. Like HTML and, and CSS are very forgiving. Um, compared to JavaScript. So, I don't know. That's why uh, we have Track.js, right, Todd? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I do know all too well how fragile it can be. Uh, nobody yeah. has zero errors. Even, you know, these very well, uh, well-respected, you know, engineering <laughs> teams, they still have tons of client-side bugs for, for, you know, all the reasons you talked about. Like, the web is this crazy, unpredictable place that you don't have control over, and lots can change, lots can go wrong. People access your stuff with, like, weird devices over weird networks, and yeah, having having spent the last five years really digging into all the ways JavaScript can fail, when I actually go to write a website, I write very, very, very little JavaScript. Just, just a little dash. The, the amount of JavaScript where if I feel the need to compress my JavaScript, I've written too much JavaScript. Like it should be trivial to the point where I shouldn't even feel the need to minify it. <laughs> because it'll be a, like a negligible performance gain mm -hmm. over just like running it, you know, serving it with gzip 
compression. If I feel the need to like like compress and mangle it, eh, maybe I have too much JavaScript here. Yeah, ironically, even though my whole job is teaching people JavaScript, I tend to use so little of it on my sites that I can inline all of it and still serve the entire document in a single HTTP request. So. Yeah. I bet that's a fast request. It is. It's it's pretty awesome to have a page just kind of show up and run. Like it's it's pretty awesome. I've got on any typical page on my site, the HTML, CSS, and JavaScript are all under 14 KB, like combined after um, after gzipping. So. So so speaking of that, let's talk about this other site that you build, uh, leanweb.dev. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So. Um, the lean web is kind of this, this concept I've been talking about, some principles for a simpler, faster worldwide web. Because in my, in my perspective, I feel like the web is a bloated, over-engineered mess. And it's kind of the result of a lot of what we consider modern best practices. So this was, this is, so Thomas Fuchs sometime last year tweeted out the phrase, the lean web, asking if there were any conferences that catered to this idea of, you know, only using JavaScript when you need to and just focusing more on performance and using more old school tools. And he's used the term a few times since then. And uh, as far as I can tell, he's the one who coined it, but it really resonated with me. So I used it a few times in some blog posts and I started kind of really like digging into it. Um, and it ended up kind of spinning out into a conference talk um, that I gave a few times and then kind of recorded a video of, and then it kind of turned into like a book, which then turned into a site that has all the stuff and some resources around how to build the web in a little bit more lean of a way. But um, yeah, it's just, it's really all about how modern web development best practices uh, exist for a reason, but are overused and um, sometimes a little nonsensical. And some ideas I have on how to, um, how to make things a little bit more, a um, little bit more simple. The thing that I, I think, if you were to really distill it to kind of a crux, it's that um, the heart of modern web development seems to be these JavaScript frameworks. And for all the reasons we just talked about, JavaScript has a lot of negative performance implications. So to get around that, we throw more JavaScript at the problem with package managers and module bundlers, and then we start using techniques like CSS and JavaScript and kind of component-based loading to try and load. So we're throwing more JS at a problem to load less JS. Um, and in doing so, we end up breaking a lot of the things the browser gives you out of the box, which we then have to re-implement with even more JavaScript. And so like we've created a performance problem with JavaScript that we try and fix with JavaScript, more JavaScript that breaks things the browser does, which we then recreate with more JavaScript. And it just feels like this kind of circle of insanity. Um, and, uh, you know, so I kind of explore the idea that maybe, you know, older, more traditional approaches to things are not the worst thing in the world, that it's certainly okay to use new tools and techniques, but that just optimizing for developer experience is not the right metric to focus on. It's not the most important thing that we do. Um, and that it can alienate people who aren't good at JavaScript. Um, you know, particularly like accessibility specialists and um, people who specialize in CSS or user interaction design. It can leave them shut out of processes they used to be able to participate in. Yeah, I think that one thing that I've noticed in using all of these frameworks over the years is that accessibility sort of gets thrown out the window. And if you want to have your app be accessible while using React or Vue or whatever, that's 
like you said, another library that you're throwing on top of stuff to make mm -hmm. sure like the, the native accessibility features that the browser gives you um, will, will work. Yeah, there's um there's a lot of talk with this. I, I see like React has been really putting a lot of effort recently into kind of doing more accessibility stuff and people who are proponents of React will often say that, you know, well, you could use React to make sure that everything you build is accessible by throwing in all these libraries and things. And, and it's like, yeah, but like you broke accessibility in the first place. Um, there was a there was a study done earlier this year um, by uh, the organization WebAIM, they're an accessibility organization that found that uh, of the top million websites on the web, the ones that use frameworks are more likely to have accessibility issues. Um, and I don't think that's I don't think that's by accident. I don't think using using these tools inherently makes you less accessible necessarily. But it seems like there's something about the culture around these tools that lends itself to either not caring about accessibility as much or kind of treating it as an afterthought. Um, yeah, there's a, there's, a slippery, there's a slippery slope when it comes to it. Like, if you're going to start buying into the React ecosystem or the Angular ecosystem, sooner or later, you're going to, like, buy into, like, more and more of it. And, like, yeah, you, you can't really do it effectively unless you also use, like, web or uh, uh, bundlers. You can't do it effectively unless you use this plugin of, like, oh, yeah, you could create your own multi-select modal, or you should use this, you know, widget library that comes with the, your ecosystem as well. It's just too easy to you're you take a step in and now all of a sudden you are you're not building a web app anymore you're building a React app you're building an Angular app. I mean I see it even with um like the new Twitter UI uses divs instead of buttons and for things that are buttons and so they had to recreate um like a lot of default button things like making them focusable so that you can tab over to them and um. Uh, being able to hit them with a spacebar or an enter key, or I guess a spacebar, not the you know, not the return key, but um, the way you can't with like a link or a div. Um, and the argument was that it made styling them a little bit easier because of reasons. But you can style a button element, like you don't, you know what I mean? Like it just, there's just something about that whole, and I don't want to throw out, because there are a lot of really good React developers, and there are a lot of React developers who care about accessibility, but there's something about the culture of frameworks that seems to always put concerns around performance and accessibility second. Um, and I find that really frustrating. It's not everywhere. I mean, you look at tools like Preact that are a fraction of the size of React. Um, Svelte.js is a really interesting kind of emergent in the frameworky space, although it's more of a pre-compiler. But um, I don't know, when I look at the big kind of monolithic Frameworks. I, I just I don't know what it is about them, but it just a lot of important things seem to disappear when they show up. So let's say let's say you're out at a conference or you're on a podcast and you're with let's say you're with one of the core React people. What what is your argument to them? Like what do you tell them to be like, hey, yeah, um, I know what you're trying to do is like great and productive and everything, but like you're kind of hurting a lot of stuff with, with what you're doing. I I honestly don't know. That's a really interesting question. I'm not entirely sure what I would do. I mean, to be perfectly honest, the people who build these tools are really smart, really talented engineers, and I am in awe of what they can do. I know because I tried to put together my own like lightweight view alternative called Reef, and um, it, uh, 
it 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 works and it, it works relatively well um but it it was a lot of work to code and it does a fraction of what some of these bigger projects do so i i, I find them really interesting um i think the the bigger thing for me around these is their sheer for well, it's two things it's first of all it's their sheer size um so React is, you know, like 30 kilobytes gzipped and minified, which is which is pretty big. Um, and I look at an alternative like Preact that uses the same modern API but ditches things like um, uh, um, like virtual DOM, for example. So there's no virtual DOM; it just works off the real DOM, um, and it's missing some some kind of core features. But it's a it's a fraction of the size and does a lot of what React does out of the box already. So is there a reason why real React couldn't be smaller? Um, uh, the other thing is um, there seems to be kind of this movement to, not that the original React developers kind of pushed it this way, but there's this like, you need to use these tools for everything kind of environment in web development right now. Like whenever someone shares a new project, one of the first questions I see on Twitter is always like, hey, what framework did you use to build this? Like as if that's the most interesting thing about the product or project. And, um, you know, um, React was built to solve a really specific problem, which was working with really, really large data sets and really large UIs where querying the real DOM becomes problematic, expensive. Um, you know, the, the virtual DOM is in there because it makes dealing with these huge data sets more performant. But most of us aren't building apps that are as big as Twitter or QuickBooks or Facebook or, you know, one of the other really large applications that benefits from a setup like that. And so I just wish there was more messaging around um, what this is and isn't for. Um, I certainly wouldn't expect someone to like say you shouldn't use my project because of X, but like I do that. I have a plugin called Smooth Scroll that animates scrolling to anchor links, and these days a single line of CSS does the same exact thing, but has a couple of limitations that my script can work around. So if you don't need to deal with those limitations, don't use my script. Use the CSS version and call it a day. Um, same goes for React. Like I would love if they were a little bit more mindful of like, hey, if you're not dealing with super large data sets. Maybe just use Preact. Maybe, maybe, maybe don't use anything at all. Um, I don't know. I, that's 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 wishful thinking. I, I don't realistically think someone who runs a tool would do that. But I wish more people did. I think you, know? you make a really good point. Um, whenever I think about redesigning my blog, I'm always I always the first thing I was thinking about is what framework I could use. Um, not because not because I'm lazy or I expect it to do magic for me, but because I want to learn it. You know, you know, and I think that's a lot of developers also push themselves into these frameworks because they want to learn it, um, not because the project needs it. And so when I looked at my JavaScript file as to all the things going on in my site, you know, first of all, it has Moo tools, which it, it shouldn't probably need anymore for element stuff. Um, I was like, oh, we have a fetch API. I don't need this massive chunk. And when I boiled down and looked at every piece of, of what was in that file, I was like, I think I can do everything with native APIs now without any fuss. And so I'm in the same camp as you as sort of pleading with people to really look at what you need, not what you think is going to make life easier because it could become harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, learning is important. Like I, 
I, for me, the fact that there's never anything like you, you never have to be bored in this profession if you don't want to be. There's always something new to learn. So like, I think that's great. If you want to learn one of these new tools, I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I, every time I play with one of these, I pick up some interesting patterns or best practices that I can apply in interesting ways to other projects. I think it's more what you just said. Like if it's a, you know, and for something like a personal blog, I, I think that's the perfect place to experiment with stuff like this. Um, when you start getting into, well, I'm going to build this new work project in framework X because that's the new hotness. I think that's where you see problems. I even saw there was a big giant GitHub issue for the Mozilla developer network itself um, not too long ago because one of the developers there said they were going to rebuild it in React because he wanted to learn how it works. And it's great to learn how it works, but that's a really terrible reason to use it on such a big, important site like that. It turned out they were just using it for server-side rendering and you'd still just get plain old HTML from the server, so no harm, no foul. But, you know, just kind of this mindset of, if I'm gonna learn it, let's just use it on a big corporate project. Um, your, it feels like almost like, um, like you're passing the expense on to someone else. Like you wanna learn this thing and so you're passing that debt on to future developers who have to maintain it forever, users who are visiting the site and have to deal with all the extra JavaScript. Um, and that just feels um, like misaligned priorities. Resume-driven development is a term I've heard. Ooh, yes. That. Yes, so, that I, I've never heard that before, but spot on. Yeah, two, definitely. Two points. I wrote the MDN front end, uh, okay. much of it, and I agree with you. It should not be written in React. Number two, <laughs> um, on, on the, the topic of Mozilla, the exact same um, cost I see being passed on to other developers um, where, you know, Mozilla is a place where you can experiment, it's encouraged, um, people get excited about frameworks and technologies, mm -hmm. but a lot of times things don't pan out or someone gets shifted around. And again, you've inherited a site using God knows what framework um, because someone at some point was excited about it. Um, and so I've seen that actually quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So while you were talking, I was thinking it, a, a lot of the pitch around Lean Web sounds like this other site that I came across a while ago by Una Kravitz. You might not need js.com, which is like a bunch of like really common like UI patterns that people would often implement in JavaScript, but like you can do it totally with like CSS and HTML. I don't think I ever realized that was by Una, and I feel like an idiot now. Um, yeah, but. Um, uh, but yes, it is, it is relatively, um, it is kind of similar. So I, I have a whole bunch of sites. Like one of them is vanillajstoolkit.com, which is I think more analogous to, you might not need jQuery. Um, it's just a giant collection of native kind of browser methods and helper functions I've written over the years and plugins I've used that are a little bit lighter in weight that, that I like, but, um, yeah, very similar kind of thing. Um, I love seeing these tools. I think anything that gets people to kind of make that transition more easily uh, is great. I created mine just because I got tired of Googling the same stuff over and over again, and I wanted like a a, a quick place I could go copy paste my own code. That sounds um, familiar, David. <laughs> I, I know of a similar story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um I generally build tools for myself and then share them in the hopes that someone will find them interesting. And it turns out that 
a lot of people do. Um, but uh, but yeah, and I'd imagine you know David, your your personal blog is exists for the same reason. Like I know Go Make Things was kind of a similar. Like I'm I'm learning stuff. I don't want to forget it. I'm just gonna write it down. Um, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the number if I had to pay myself for the number of times I use my own site on a day to day basis, I'd probably be broke. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds like a good point to uh, to shift over to takeaways. David, what do you think? Uh, what was what was a key thing that you think was important today? I think that we need more people like Chris who not only have this mindset that we need to stick to the basics of JavaScript, but are willing to evangelize it and, you know, try and promote that idea. Um, like I said, I used to not want to redesign my website because I didn't want to rewrite all of the JavaScript over again. But now I'm actually really excited to because we have native APIs for all of it. And I don't need to include hundreds of kilobytes of JavaScript. Um, I can just do the small stuff. Now I'm scared to redesign it because I'm not a designer again. <laughs> it's cyclical. How about you, Todd? I really like that we brought, that we're bringing back this idea of uh, progressive enhancement to the web. I loved progressive enhancement. That was like a mantra that I used. And like, I still try and build sites that way. And people like give me weird looks when I'm like, just not just using something. I, I was working with a younger developer once and just for expediency, like we are just like roughing a, a project together. And I just put, I just whipped up a form that would, you know, post the results to this endpoint. And he's like, yeah, but how's it gonna get to the API? I'm like, there's a form. And he's like, yeah, but you need some JavaScript to like get the array. Like he didn't know <laughs> that forms were a thing and, and the browser itself would send the date. I didn't need to use fetch. I didn't need to intercept the submit request. Like getting back to basics, I think is uh, is really good and, and I love it. Chris. What what final thoughts would you like to leave us with? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I think you can tell that we're all a bunch of um, old people on the web because of how we kind of think about think about and approach these sorts of things. But um, I am um, in in my lean web talk. I kind of I use this idea of being a developer dinosaur, um, and uh, I I really kind of like this idea. Um, just you know, embrace the platform. Be a little bit small and modular. Lean on older, trusted technologies when you can. Augment them with newer approaches when it makes sense. And most importantly, I think remember that the web is is for everyone and not just people who are like you. That that is a great that is a great note. I love that. All right, so we will get all of this stuff put up into the show notes. If people want to get in touch with you, Chris, and like learn more or ask some questions, how's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, all things me um, start at gomakethings.com. I've actually uh, put together a special page for listeners of this podcast, gomakethings.com slash script and style, where I've pulled together a bunch of related articles and podcasts and other interesting stuff based on what we've talked about today. Um, so I would start there. Awesome. All right. I think that's a great show. Anybody else? Anybody got a, a final note? Nothing. All right. 
Thanks so much for, for listening and or watching. We'll be back next week with another topic. If you have ideas or questions or guest ideas that you think we should talk about, please hit us up on Twitter uh, at Script and Style or I'm on Twitter at Todd H. Gardner. I'm at David Walsh Blog. See you next Thanks time. so much. The Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.